a story in scripture, the quintessential Christmas story, the Luke 2 of it all. Uh, the story that I remember reading around the dinner table on Christmas Day with my grandparents and my cousins and all a uh, very familiar story. And today I just want to notice something in this story that I notice now that I didn't notice then. Something that stands out to me. So uh, this is Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Pretty familiar this time of year, right? Uh, the thing that I, I didn't really recognize while we were waiting for our mashed potatoes and uh, our turkey or whatever it is we were, we were eating a, as a kid is that this story that I just read is a story about stark contrasts. Stark contrasts. Because on one hand, you have like the recipients of the angel's message, right? These shepherds these lowest people in society. Today, they would basically be uh, homeless people, unhoused people, right? They were out there literally living in their fields with their flocks, people who live in poverty. And then you have this throwaway reference at the very beginning. I, I used to hear this, this scripture and think like, oh, this is just a reference to what time period? The time of Caesar Augustus. But that, that reference matters a lot. It says a lot right at the top because he is the Roman emperor, the wealthiest person in, and most powerful person in the empire. In fact, Caesar shared many of the same titles that we assign to Jesus Christ. He assigned to himself. He claimed to be divine, the son of a God. He uh, claimed that there was a star that announced his own divinity, that he was the bringer of peace. But the difference is that Caesar's peace is not a peace for everyone. As the angels say, this is good news for all people, but not Caesar's world. In Caesar's peace, there was uh, peace and prosperity for those who were wealthy and who were Roman. It was for a certain class of people that did not include poor shepherds, let alone a teenager and her newborn son in a feeding trough. This is a story about contrasts. Rome was a class-based society, and you cannot talk about the birth of Jesus Christ, the Christmas story, without recognizing the poor. Christmas is a story about the God of the universe entering into a class-based structure, a society based on uh, positions, and entering into a stable with people in poverty. 
Now, we might think about classes a little differently in our culture because they don't seem to like matter as much in our world and our culture, but yet we still do have upper, middle, lower class tiers in our society, right? We think, we believe that there can be freedom of movement within those classes, uh, but they're still there. But if you think about something, anybody watch Downton Abbey? I don't know if that's still a thing anymore. Some of you are really into it. I get it, right? Uh, but you look at any kind of British movie, right? You got the lords and the ladies. They're in one class. But beneath them are a whole array of chambermaids and, and chauffeurs and gardeners and cooks and domestic servants. And everyone has sort of like a well-defined place in the pecking order. You might be able to move up a rung or two in your own class, but you don't switch classes. I watched Gladiator last night. I don't know why. I had Rome on the mind, I guess. But like, there's a story about a a man who was a general and became a slave and moved down into classes. Now, class distinction is kind of normal. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. The reality of life is that people are in different positions and God loves people who are highbrows and God loves rednecks too. Like it doesn't have to matter, but our world makes it matter, doesn't it? Because our world tends to value one over the other. And so the question with the Christmas story in the midst of these class contrasts is how is the church different than that world in Rome? And the answer is Jesus, right? If you put this in terms of class distinction, can you think of anyone else uh, as high class as Jesus Christ? I mean, the son of the king of the universe. We just sang about all the names we call him, that we ascribe to him, the prince of peace, right? He has a high class distinction. And yet, as we celebrate this time of year, he took the place of the lowest rung on the ladder. And he arrived before shepherds, homeless, not Caesar, the wealthy. That's not an accident. And it's not just poetry either. It's kind of how we we vibe with it. It's just vibes at Christmas. That's what's going on. But that's not really what's going on. Because this was a man born in a barn, not a palace. This was intentional. This was a man who who told his disciples as he grew and as he led in Matthew chapter 20, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. You cannot talk about the birth of Christ without talking about class, without talking about poverty. The poor is not something you can skip over in the Christmas story. In fact, the great revival preacher, Jonathan Edwards, wrote this whole treatise on the Christian's duty to the poor. And in that, he claims that one of the marks of the church, the only ways that you know what the church is the church, is in fact the care and involvement with the poor. He says there is nothing clearer or stronger in the Bible than our duty to care for and be involved with the poor among us. There's nothing mentioned more often in the Bible, nothing mentioned more strongly or clearly than the church's duty to care for the poor. And the culture of Caesar and Rome is filled with these class distinctions. And Jesus Christ's culture, the kingdom of God, is meant to be without classes. So if the birth of Jesus is meant to usher in this whole new society, that's what I want to wrestle with today. And so today I want to do three things. 
I want to first help us get to know the poor, what the Bible says about the poor. Second, I want to help us become the poor. And then third, I want to help us love the poor. Because Jesus Christ showed up in a manger. And because the angel said that this is for all people, not just those in one tier versus another. So the first thing, the first thing the gospel helps us do is to understand the poor, to know the poor. And in, and in Luke 6, Jesus is, is beginning like what we call the Sermon on the Mount in, in the book of Matthew. Mark, or Luke kind of shrinks it a little bit. But in Luke 6, he starts and he says to this, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, this was not a new like idea when Jesus said it. In fact, Jesus is probably summarizing about 200 different Old Testament verses about the poor. And the Bible defines the poor and it helps us understand what poverty really is. And from what I can understand by looking through the Bible and looking at how it talks about the poor, I think that we have to understand two things about the condition of poverty in order to understand it. And the first is that the Bible says poverty is an economic condition. I know, big shock, right? But the Bible says that poverty is an economic condition and not simply being without money, but more it's a condition of being without resources or without value might be a better way to say it. Being poor means you have little to offer the world that the world cares about, that the world values. If you have money, the world values you. They might listen to you, right? If you have talent, the world pays attention to you. They might engage with you. If you have nothing the world values, then you kind of get thrown away because the world is... If you have influence, the world cares about you. If you don't, you don't matter. If you as a child grew up in a community that, that didn't teach you how to read or to write or you moved around a lot and you had no adults investing in you, And by the time you mature, you had such a broken family that uh, there's no sense of belonging and that the only place to find that was in a gang for connection or safety. So now you've matured, but you don't know the basics of relationship building. You don't know how to read and write. You don't have personal responsibility and you move through the world and you've got nothing that the world values. So the world throws you away. And the Bible says that by and large, the vast majority of people who are, are, are in misery in the Bible are people who are born and as they grow, find out that they have nothing of value to the world. Proverbs 19 puts it this way. The poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. The poor are without things that this world values so much so that they don't even have neighbors. Their neighbors move away from them. We're guilty of that too, right? How many of us would say, now we don't want housing for the poor built in our communities, right? The poor are shunned even by their neighbors because they don't have anything that the world values. And throughout the the biblical story, the Bible tells us again and again how we are to respond to this economic condition of poverty. The Bible says that the way to respond is with mercy, with mercy, Israel is told by God, you are going to be a light of all nations. You're going to be a light to the nations because in your community, you're going to take care of the widow. In your community, you're going to take care of the orphan. In your community, you're going to take care of the poor because those people are without the things that the world values. There will be no poor among you. 
In fact, God legislated this. He gave all kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 23, God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap from the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor, the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Don't harvest all of your, your field. Leave some of it for the poor. And in Deuteronomy, uh, he's got this instruction. When you have finished setting aside a tenth, uh, a tithe of all your produce, produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. This was God's social security plan in Israel, that every third year, an additional tithe of everything you gave was given to the poor. God literally legislates mercy into his people because mercy was the response of God's people to the poor. So if you are going to understand the poor, the first thing to understand is it is an economic condition. It is a condition of lacking what the world values. The second thing that the Bible says about the poor uh, is that even what they do have will be taken from them which means it's not just an economic condition. It's also a social condition. Because there's two, uh, he, there's two ways you can translate the poor. Like two different Hebrew words in the Old Testament get translated to what we would say is poor in, the, in English. Uh, and one of the major Hebrew words that's translated as poor uh, is actually meaning of needy. Like you're without, you're in need. We got that part. Uh, The other major word is translated from the idea of oppression, being oppressed. The Hebrew says oppressed, we translate it as poor. So on one hand, the Bible says uh, the poor are, are folks who are needy, who are without, they don't have much. On the other hand, it could be someone who does have a little bit of something, but it's actually taken away from you. You are oppressed. Proverbs 13 says, an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. What the poor do have is taken away because they are poor, because they are powerless. The world takes from them without giving anything into return because it doesn't matter. They don't have power. And the word the Bible uses for this is oppression or exploitation. Because you are poor, Because you are without, those with power can take from you, can exploit you, and you can't do anything about it. Years ago, there was a a pastor named Robert who was was an urban pastor working kind of like on a summer uh, schedule uh, in an urban ministry. And he wrote a book called Understanding the City Through the Gospel. And he tells a story that he was working in a housing project in an urban area in the 60s. And he met a girl named Eva, and she was 14 years old. And he led her to Christ, and she was attending the program that they were. But her family life was broken. Crime and drugs were part of her story. Poor education, poor skills. Robert led her to Christ, and one day she said to to him, Hey, listen, I'm under terrible pressure by a large gang in my community who recruits young girls to be prostitutes for wealthy clients in the suburbs where they can, it's a way to make money and support yourselves if you sell your, yourself. And they're trying to force me to join. And Robert didn't really get it. He said, well, don't. 
Just tell them no. Resist that. Why would you do that? And so he went away after his summer kind of there in the urban uh, city while he was learning and writing. And he came back a few months later and he tracked her down. And she said, I gave in, I'm, I'm working for them. And he said, well, how could you do that? How could you give in like that? And she said, well, first they told me that they would beat my father. And then they did. And then they told me they'd uh, beat my brother and he ended up in the hospital. And then they said they'd hurt my mother. And I just finally said, okay, I joined. And Robert said, why didn't you call the police or tell someone? And she said, who do you think the clients are in this story? Exploitation, oppression, an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. Even what they have will be taken from them. I mean, there's a lot of people in this room that has something. You have something. You have material wealth. You have uh, things. Maybe you have youth. Maybe you have beauty. And because you are not poor, it cannot be taken from you. Nobody will come and take it from you. But because she was, they could. They could just come and take what they wanted, and they didn't have to give anything back. And the Bible calls that injustice, oppression. It's built into our world, even in really, really subtle ways. I mean, imagine a a wealthy person owning just rental properties in poor communities. Maybe they're a great landlord. They care about their tenants. They do a great job, but they don't live in that community. They live in a different, wealthier suburb or community, and the money they take from from those in poverty who rent from them doesn't go back into their community It goes into the wealthy person's community, to those gas stations, to those restaurants, to those shops. An unplowed field does produce food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. Because poverty is an economic condition, we respond to it with mercy. And because it's also a social condition, we respond to it with justice. And it is into this very world between Caesar's palace and a poor teenage girl that the king of the universe shows up because God understands. I'm not sure we just, we understand how, how, how political, I guess, or how disruptive the birth of Jesus truly is to our world. I just think about it as a story I read around the, the, the lunch table with my grandpa and my grandma and all the people that I love. But the story of Jesus' birth was meant to undo poverty through mercy and through justice. Now, listen, so far in this sermon, uh, probably all I've given you around this, this topic is like a bunch of guilt, right? Like, well, I feel bad. Um, I don't know. Maybe you should. That's fine. But that's, we're not done. And I don't think that's the best motivator uh, in God's kingdom. I don't think God has that as a motivation ever. Uh, I think there's more to invite us into because there's more. It's not enough just to know the poor. The gospel, the story of Jesus is a lot more than that because I believe the gospel makes us poor. I'm going to talk about that. Back to Luke. Luke, uh, Luke 6, again, he says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God, which is a really confusing thing to say when you know who his disciples are. Because when you look at Jesus' disciples, it seems like they're not all that poor all the time. 
I mean, some of them might be a little bit, but if you go a little bit up in chapter six, you get the list of the people that Jesus called together. And he's just gotten Peter and Andrew and James and John. And one of them is Matthew. And we know Matthew wasn't poor. He was a tax collector. He was wealthy by, by their standards. Uh, and, and probably knew a bunch of other people who weren't poor in there. And maybe not even the Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen. They had a family business. They probably weren't in, in poverty. I mean, they certainly weren't extravagantly wealthy by any means. But likely they weren't in that kind of poverty we've been talking about. So Jesus looks at these guys and he says, you who are poor. And I kind of don't get it. One way to understand it is that Jesus is talking uh, a little bit differently. He may be speaking to them uh, in a way that says, you who embrace the life of the poor in spirit. He says that in Matthew, uh, the Matthew version of this says, you who are poor in spirit, blessed are, are those who are poor in spirit. That you will be blessed when you embrace the spirit, the life of the poor in your life, when you become poor. Jesus says blessing and the kingdom comes to you when you adopt the spirit of poverty. And, and I think maybe the best way to understand this is to contrast it is to contrast like a spirit of poverty with a middle-class spirit. Let's go there. I'm a middle-class person, right? Believe it or not, religion is kind of a middle-class spirit, right? Because religion, uh, not the gospel, but religion says, well, try, to har- try really hard to be good. Uh, try, try really hard to be tolerant. Give money to people who are less fortunate than you. Uh, that's, that's religion, Right? Be good, be nice, have mercy. And all the religious people say is like, I can do that. I can work really hard and just do that as best as I can. I'll summon up all of my strength. And, and I believe that religion appeals to people who say, I think I can work hard enough to do it right. That's a middle-class spirit. That's a religious spirit, right? But that is not the gospel. Because the gospel only comes into the lives of people who say, I have absolutely nothing of value. I have no power to save myself. I have no choices that I can make that that take me away from my sin. It is always with me. And I have to rely completely on the salvation of Jesus Christ, on the sheer grace of Jesus Christ in order to be made whole. That's a spirit of poverty. That doesn't say, if I just do, if I work harder, I'll get it. It's, it's a spirit that says, I can't. I have nothing. I need Jesus. When Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, he's looking at the people who are following him, who may not be materially poor. And he's saying, if you take on the spirit of the poor, the spirit of total poverty, the spirit of total reliance on something other than yourself, you will be blessed because the poor understand grace. The poor understand the need for mercy. They acknowledge their lack of power because grace really only matters when you say you're no better than anyone else. And Uh, I'm utterly lost. There is no hope, but Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the King who became poor. And only because he did that, only because he showed up in that manger, do you or I have any hope? 
we must come to God with nothing. The poor understand total surrender, total need. And the gospel is only for the spiritually poor, only for those who understand total reliance on Jesus Christ. The king who became a poor man, born in a manger to impoverished parents. Jesus Christ, who said the foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man does not have a place to lay down his head. Jesus Christ, a man who was rejected, a man who was cast off, a man who was always weeping, who was always empty. Jesus Christ, a man who on Palm Sunday rode in on a borrowed donkey to have his last supper in a borrowed room and was buried in a borrowed grave and dies naked with the last shred of dignity taken from him. That's the gospel. That is the story that begins in Luke chapter two, that begins in that manger. And if the gospel works on your heart, you become poor because the poor understand the total need and reliance on Jesus. And only then can you totally recognize what the, what the gift of grace actually is. The gospel is only for the spiritual poor because only the spiritual poor understand it. It's especially for the material poor who practice this every day. So the question is, how self-reliant are you? Where do you land in your spirit, in the way you think about yourself in relation to the world? Are you poor in spirit or middle class in spirit? You see, when you begin to understand the poor, you can see what it means to become the poor and embrace the message of the gospel. And only then can you find yourself actually loving the poor, which is the last point here. You know, before Jesus was born, uh, God showed up to Mary, his mother. And he was told by the God of the universe that, sh- that he was going to partner with her for salvation for the world. Kind of a big day for Mary. And when young Mary hears this, she sings a song. The fancy word for it is the Magnificat. It's Mary's song. You find uh, early in Luke chapter one. And and we hear these words that she sings there in a totally new light when we think in, in this framework of poverty. And this is what she sings. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. What I notice is that when Mary sings, she sings in the past tense. Which is funny, Jesus isn't born yet in Luke 1. It's a chapter later, right? She's not singing, he will do this. She's singing, he has done this. He has lifted up the, it's happened, it's over. This is, the new kingdom is here. And I think she said this because she feels like God sees me. God knows me. She, she knows that the God of the universe sees her, a humble servant, as she calls herself. He sees her, he is one with her, he is partnering with her. And she's poor. She's without anything the world values. She's oppressed by Caesar and Herod and the wealthy, the upper class. And in this moment, 
she realizes that God identifies with her, that God loves her. And when we start to understand the poor, we recognize our need to become poor. And when we start to become poor, we experience God's great love for the poor. And in turn, we begin to love the poor as well. Because we can look at the poor and say, I'm there too. I get it. We're all in the same boat. We are all without value. We all are in reliance of the God of the universe. And you don't pity them, you love them. Because there is no difference. When we become poor, we see the need, our own need for the gospel. And it utterly changes how we view those who are materially poor. We begin to partner with them. We begin to build relationships with them. We begin to live with them. We begin to walk with them. We get to uh, become a part of them because we are them. When we practice generosity, we don't do so because it's just what we do to be a good person. That's religion, right? We don't even give because it does good things to them. We give because it reminds us that we are without anything, that we are in total need of a savior born in a manger, And it shapes our hearts to love those who are just like us. The poverty of Jesus Christ in a manger is so important. I can't go through the Christmas season without talking about it because it's so important. This is how the birth of Christ can be an invitation to a new kingdom if we let it. A kingdom without class and without distinction. We are all poor. We are all without what the world values. But... The king has come to us. Joy to the world, not to Caesar. The Lord has come. Let every heart prepare him room. What does that mean? When I'm a kid growing up, I'm like, that is a weird thing. I don't know how to prepare a room in my heart, right? But maybe now where the question is, where, uh, where does your heart need to make room for a spirit of poverty? Where does your heart need to make room for justice? Where does your heart need to make room for mercy? Where does your heart need to make room for reliance? Let the whole earth receive him, not just one class or another, the whole earth. So today, as we, as we think about this comfortable text, this, this classic story of Jesus Christ born in a manger and the people we love around the table reading or hearing or listening to it, I would invite you to consider what would it mean for you to become poor today? To become needy today? So you can fully embrace the gospel and the gift of his grace today. And that when you do, you in turn find yourself in relationship with the poor. Because poverty is central to the gospel on Christmas morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for this reminder today that you are a king who became a poor baby born to poor parents in a feeding trough of an animal. God, I, I confess how, how often I think that I've got it together, that I think I can rely on myself for one thing or another without realizing that everything I am, everything I have, I owe to your grace. My entire being exists because of you. God, I I recognize, I think it is because of me. 
So God, I pray that you would help all of us to to walk in a spirit of poverty, uh, to understand the poor, to become poor, and to love the poor, because that is the message of the gospel, and that is the message of your grace. We are so grateful for your grace today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.